Welcome to the latest Rapid City Public Library podcast. And these few episodes are going to be delving into the secret lives of librarians. Now here at the Rapid City Public Library, the librarians and library associates come from varied backgrounds, have differing interests and passions outside of work. But the one thing that they all share in common is the passion for connecting the community to education, information, and inspiration. We will start with having you please introduce yourself, tell everybody what you do here at the Rapid City Public Library, and how long you've been working here. So, my name is Bailey. I am the Events and Teen Services Library Associate here, and I've been working here for nearly two years. In April, it'll be two years. And you have a variety of outside interests that we are going to touch on today. Which one do you want to start with? Um, I think the one that is most like eye-catching probably would be uh, my interest and collecting of old medical equipment and medicine and just interest in old medicine, I should say. So my mind immediately goes to stuff that Nowadays, we'd say, oh, that's, that was so inhumane. <laughs> These are torture devices. Well, but what, what, are, what are some of the things that you have uh, found and collected so far? So uh, a lot of it is old medicine that's still sealed. That's what I try to go for. It is like stuff that's still sealed. I don't want things that could. I've a cat and I don't want her to get into anything or stuff like that. So, But it's mostly just the ingredients they use that interest me. Some of it, I'm just like, why would they ever? They, a lot of it, it seems like they were just throwing things at the board and saying, let's see what this does. <laughs> and so a lot of the inhumane stuff has been destroyed or you don't want it in your home because it's like, I don't know if that can be safely around people. Like, I know some people have like lobotomy ice picks and stuff, but I'm just like, I don't really want to put that on display in my home. Okay. So a lot of like, I, I see the, the memes that kind of circulate and it'll be the ingredients for old cough medicine. I <laughs> guess. Some of that stuff's illegal now. <laughs> well, I have an old bottle of cough medicine. I should have brought it, but I was like, it's a podcast. People aren't going to see it. And one of the ingredients, one of the main ingredients is chloroform. Wow. Okay. And so I'm like, well, yeah, if you have a cold, you're just no longer going to have a cold because you're going to be passed out. Well, you'll have a cold, but you won't be able to notice it. Right, right. And it's so interesting because on the back of it, it has recommended doses and like they, can, they have the recommended dosage for children. And I'm like, I don't <laughs> oh, think children should have been drinking this. I can see why, like, you know, our grandparents went through a lot and I can see why. <laughs> so it, it's just absolutely crazy. Sometimes you look at the ingredients and you can see like where they were going with it. But then you're like, yeah, I, it's not safe in this context. But, you know, along the way, they figured out how to use it. Well, that goes to even today where there'll be a diet drug that also helps with um, stress levels or, mm -hmm. you know, things like that. Yeah. They find these side things that it wasn't originally intended for. Propranolol was meant to be a blood pressure medication, and then they figured out that anxiety, it also helps with that. And so a lot of people with anxiety get prescribed propranolol. And I know that it's been popping up in a lot of like murder cases now. People are being overdosed with propranolol, and oh, wow. I'm like, I didn't know it could do that. Huh. 
how do you get these? I mean, like estate sales or is there like an uh, online trading So a lot of them or? just pop up at antique stores. Really? Like here in Rapid City at uh, St. Joe's Antique Store, I got a lot of really good um, stuff. A lot of it is just empty bottles, but even those I find interesting and they're a lot safer. But then sometimes they're just in nooks and crannies of antique stores. And sometimes it's because the bottles look cool or antique and they just put them up there and you're like, no, that's um, that's a big old bottle of castor oil was really popular. Um, people would take it by the tablespoons and just drink a lot of it. So castor oil is really popular in the Bottles huh. are pretty cool, too. I remember uh, one time at St. Joe's Antique Mall, it's Antique Mall, not Antique Store, I found, um, because in Rapid City and in the Black Hills, mining was, you know, a very large a career in this area for sure. quite a while. And I found a old box of smelling salts that were used by miners. Like, it was sold two mining companies. That was what it was for. And all of the smelling salts had been used by that point. So I don't know what happened, but it was a very cool find. What did they use that for? Like if they were just... If they passed out. Underground, just not enough oxygen or whatever. Not enough oxygen. Maybe they come across like a natural gas vein and that can knock people out. Oh, okay. And so um, carrying somebody out is a lot harder than just making them wake up very forcefully. <laughs> okay. What would you say is the most unique item that you have in your collection? Ooh, well, one thing that catches people's attention that I have a lot of my old antique medicine I do have on display. I make sure it's safe first. I like tape it down or I empty it if it's something that I'm like, I should probably just not have the medicine that is at this point just poison and just have the bottle or something. One of them is a sealed box and a pill bottle of, it is called pig bile extract. What is the purpose? What was the purpose of that? It aided digestion. And a lot of this I find interesting because a lot of this is kind of still in use. Um, I think pig bile extract, they don't use it as much anymore because there's just better things. But in some places they still use it. But now they have like brand names for it. But back in the day, they were just like, this is what this is. Yeah. Buy it and just live with it. And so branding really kind of turned the tide of, like, medicine, I think, too. Okay. Having brand names and not just, like, here's – when you look at ADHD medication, you're like, here's a bunch of amphetamines. <laughs> no, they're like, no, here's brand XYZ. Right, right. And then I guess another really cool – it's not necessarily a medicine, but it's a book – of it's called Dr. Evans How to Keep Well and he was somebody that would get a lot of letters I think he wrote newspaper articles he got a lot of letters from people all across the country asking him medical questions and so he compiled a bunch of different books and published those and it's thick it probably is like I'd say four inches thick maybe wow, five okay. four inches and um just would answer all of these letters and make chapters of information for people to keep in their household. And so a, a lot of it is very outdated, but it's from 1927, I want to say. Wow. And it's one of my favorite books, but it's very cool to just flip through and be like, wow, this is what they thought back then. And again, some of it he was 
along the track of that's correct. But then some of it, you're like, "Mm, I don't really know about that. (laughs) It's incredible, the advances in medicine. Absolutely. Like, I remember reading about George Washington and how they were trying to take care of him. And some of the things they did, I feel like just bloodletting only, only helped them get worse rather than better. Yeah, they weren't too far from, like, balancing humors and stuff like that. Yes, yes. And I love old medieval medical tables and stuff, which are just the most disgusting things ever. But they're just so interesting because you can see, like, a glimmer of what we understand today and then just the most mystical stuff intermixed with it, too. You can also see the old thinking that was back then because they didn't have a word for menopause and women. And they have a chapter dedicated to women and how to keep healthy, basically. And even though they're talking about this, they're using a lot of euphemisms and kind of dancing around the issue because it wasn't okay to speak about it but women still wanted to know what was happening and so i think the term they used in that book was life changes you know and as you think of like your interest i can tell is like part of it is kind of the aesthetic appeal yeah i i love antiques but medicine for some reason also just scratches my brain on that (laughs) And then there's also sort of the historical context, and that leads right into another one of your interests. Yes. So I actually, my degree is in history. And so that's kind of what feeds into that as well. I love history. I it, when you somebody says they love history, the next question is usually, what is your favorite historical period? And for me, that's very difficult because I just like different aspects of a lot of them. Dang, that ruins my next question. <laughs> so um, do you like, you know, some people, they're interested in every war. Yeah. And then other people, they're very interested in, say, the times of the pioneers. Absolutely. Where do you, where do you fit on that spectrum? It's very weird because I will get very hyper fixated on different aspects of history and focus so much on those and everything else in that period kind of falls away when I'm looking at that. And I'm just like, how does this lead into this? So, for instance, for a while, um, World War II and just the wars for a lot of people is of interest and they like look at all aspects of war or the um, militaries or the weapons they were using at the time, which are all very interesting. I liked looking at women's fashion at the time because that can tell you a lot about the economy, the culture, um, what was happening, what the average household was doing at that time. Wow. So I think I think it was in World War Two. You would expect that when hard times are happening, maybe fashion would be more to the wayside. But when we look at it, we can see that women's dresses and skirts and stuff were getting lower and they were using more fabric in their um, fashion because they were using nylon to fashion parachutes and the strings for parachutes. And so when women couldn't be wearing their stockings, they would just lower the length of their skirt. And so we can see like impacts happening in different ways across the board. And I think just like these small little aspects of it kind of speak very loudly to how it affected everything in life. That's a fascinating take. 
you're talking about sort of the cause and effect and learning, stuff like that. Mm -hmm. Is there a book that comes to mind or an author that comes to mind that you really enjoyed and really got a lot out of? Fashion history is very interesting. There is one author that I, for a lot of uh, papers that I wrote in college, uh, followed. She wrote a couple of books about this, and you can kind of jump into any of them, and they go into different centuries. It is historical fashion in detail, and it goes over several centuries, and that is Avril Hart. And okay. Susan North as well. How about an online source? Is there any any kind of go-to website? I mean, it kind of really depends on what century you're looking at. Also, where you're looking at, because European history at different periods of time vastly differentiates between Asian fashion as well. I guess a really good one would be the fashion history timeline, which is just fashionhistory.com, I think. And um, it'll give you timelines of it. It'll walk you through the different fashions in different areas. It's kind of a shallow look at it, though. Not in a bad way, but it's trying to give you a lot of information in a way that's digestible. And so if you want to look more deeply into that, you can also look at different sources for it as well. And what was that website again? Fashion History Timeline. Fashion History Timeline, okay. Or you can just look up Fashion History Timeline. So like some of the more famous examples of the things that, that you were interested in is I, I had read that during the Depression in the United States, the companies that did the flower sacks started to learn that the women would make dresses mm-hmm. out of those. And so they actually started doing like floral prints and designs. Absolutely, yeah. Yep, and again, a very good way of looking at how it impacted community as a whole. And I find it actually very touching that the flour and um, chicken seed companies would be like, yeah, let's uh, make, because a lot of these women were making dresses for their children, sending them to school, and everybody could see like the brand of the flour or chicken seed company. And those were made to wash out then, right? That ink would wash out mm-hmm. to add the floral. Yeah. Yep. How about like a uh, Victorian era where nobody took baths, so everybody powdered up and <laughs> doused themselves in Yes, and... and that's another thing we look at where we're like, wow, this is poison that you're putting in your body. <laughs> So, yeah, a lot of uh, fashion was, I shouldn't say a lot of fashion was for the um, wealthy, but uh, when you look at peasant clothing, a lot of it um, is of the fashion is more embroidery you'll find in across Europe mostly because these, I'm looking more 17th, 16th century France where we're looking at people that they can't eat every day and then you look to Versailles where these women are wearing wigs that hurt their neck and they have uh, dresses that make it impossible for them to sit down and act like somebody that has a job and so people got mad because of that. (laughs) So fashion plays uh, into that as well, which um, Marie Antoinette is also a figure that I find incredibly interesting. Sorry, I'm bouncing everywhere, but no, it's fine. Um, people have probably heard the phrase, let them eat cake. Right. She didn't say that. There was an author that wrote about a 
European princess that said that, but I think historians now attribute that to a Spanish princess. But Marie Antoinette, she was very young when she became married to King Louis. I think she was 14. I will say she was very privileged in life. She was a princess. She didn't have to work for much in her life. However, that doesn't negate the fact that she had a lot of stresses and stuff. She was trying to run a country where her husband, I'll just say, he wasn't the best at it, and he didn't really know what he was doing either. And so she really tried to do stuff, but we can look back and see that it didn't really work out for her. Right, right. One of the things, just going back to, like, the, the whalebone corsets and like yes. and you're talking about the wigs that are so heavy and then meanwhile the peasants or the poor people clothing was always very it's practical mm-hmm. you know and and so when you have money to waste some people would waste it on fashion right? yeah I mean they would waste it on everything I mean back then they you could rent a pineapple for a party because it was seen as incredibly uh, wealthy to just have a pie, not to eat, to just rent to have on a table because people would see that and they're like, oh my gosh, you got a pineapple? You're so rich. And <laughs> so they would never eat it. It was just there. And so stuff like that, you're just like, what? It doesn't matter what it is. If they can pay for it, it makes them look wealthy. <laughs> right. A lot of people say history repeats itself, which I don't really agree with. I say that it echoes and so you can okay. see remnants of history, but it never, like, happens twice. But it does echo. And so you can hearken back to what happened before and kind of apply it there. Well, if we want to go back to medicine, I guess, to tie into South Dakota, yeah. um, I think my love of medical history kind of went back to when I was like 13, 14. Before this, I didn't really have much of an interest in it. But give a little backstory. My mom, she had breast cancer when I turned, I think, 13. Um, She's fine now. I think she's nearly a decade into remission. But she got treatment at the Sanford Health Center in Sioux Falls. And one of the times where my sister and I were there with her when she was doing some sort of treatment, you know, being 13, 14, you can't really go where the kids are. But there's not really much for you to do besides kind of twiddle your thumbs. And phones back then weren't so complex as they are now. So we couldn't go on them and surf the internet. And so we kind of just wandered around the hospital. You can't, you can only go on the elevator so many times before you're like, all right, we need to find something else. And so Sanford, I hope they still have it. They had one campus on one side of this really busy street and then another campus on the other side. And instead of having a bridge over, they had a tunnel that went underneath the road. And so, um, my sister and I went through there one day and they have this, it's very out of the way, but they have this really cool sort of walk through museum of medical history. And the guides that were there when we went there, I hope they're doing well. They were two nurses that worked with a lot of the um, machinery and medicine there. And so it went back all the way to the beginning of Sanford or medical history in South Dakota. And then you walk through and you see all sorts of stuff. They had a bunch of different medical equipment. They had all sorts of different iron lung machines too, which I find particularly fascinating because 
you can cut this out because it's kind of sad if you want to. But my grandmother, um, her brother, when she was 16, he actually got polio and spent the last couple of months of his life in an iron lung. And so seeing that and remembering the stories of that and then kind of connecting them together really gave me an interest in medical history. And so I think that kind of jump-started it. And then when I got to college and I was able to actually go to antique malls and look at the stuff up close and collect a bunch of them and make my own collection of it, then I was like, all right, this is actually very cool. Do you know if there is some sort of a major museum of medical history? Oh, I'm sure there is. It also depends on what sort of medicine you're looking into, because I know the army has a museum of medical history, but it's specifically for the army, which the army really incentivize a lot of medical progress, and they get a lot of medical equipment first. Well, tampons actually started in the army as a way to stop bleeding. Really? Yeah. Huh. The National Museum of Health and Medicine is in Maryland. Maryland. I don't know why I said Maryland. (laughs) But there's also some in Cleveland and Chicago, New York, Philadelphia. And so just kind of got to look in your state and look for it. They're probably going to be smaller, more local. And a lot of local museums have medical history as well, especially in pioneer museums because they did a lot of uh, very triage medicine back then. Right, right. Just because we're speaking locally and we're only a few blocks from it, they're refurbishing the the McGillicuddy house. I saw that. So Dr. Valentine McGillicuddy, an early proponent of helping people and healing people out here in the Black Hills. And I'm wondering, I haven't been in there, but I wonder if maybe they might have some of his... The, the black bag and some yep. of the things that he may have used. Yep. Hopefully, yeah. It, it's. I love history, and more than that, I love people that help keep history alive. Uh, I think I mentioned on a podcast before that I worked at the Adams House, and one of the reasons why the Adams House is so well stocked with all of the furniture and everything from back when the Adams lived there is because the people that own the home as a bed and breakfast kept everything and they maintained everything and so the only reason we're able to look at history is because of the people that safeguard it and so i hope people were keeping track of stuff and making sure it was safe hopefully and it'll be really cool to look at when it's open are they making it into a museum do you know i think that people will be able to visit there and go through there they're they're going to keep it open and i think they're going to house one of the civic Spe- organizations yeah. there. So. Oh, uh, Historical Rapid City, I think. There we go. Yeah. So let's also talk about one of your other interests. This is sort of, to me, it seems like it's completely Yeah, different. a complete 180. <laughs> and that is? Anime. Anime is, you watch anime, right? Whereas yes. manga, you would read it. Yes. Specifically, okay. anime is Japanese animation. A lot of people think that like cartoons are anime, like cartoons across the board. Anime is very specifically Japanese animation. However, it is branching into a lot of American studios. So maybe it can evolve into more of a stylization of animation. Okay. And how did you first get into anime? Well, it kind of leads into my 
history interest because a lot of the old anime that I used to watch was historical and I would find it by looking up historical things like there is this anime I can't remember the name of it and I feel bad about it but a lot of anime writers and manga writers are I didn't know this word until I looked into anime they're called anglophiles and so they're very into anglo-saxon culture so like victorian or edwardian era um, is very popular to show up in anime which i love and there's a lot of very good anime that kind of has that style and harkens to it like one that i'm very interested in is called the ancient magus bride and that has sort of edwardian victorian style but magic as well (laughs) okay if you could find an anime series that uh dealt with medical practices <laughs> yeah the there's one about an apothecary there's actually several about apothecaries like a poison apothecary but again a lot of anime also has sort of a magical element to it so it's not fully historical fiction there's a lot of fantasy elements to it but it is very cool grounded in some fact in history and then Kind of extrapolating with imagination. Which a lot of historical fantasy does. They're like, all right, here's our setting. It's going to be completely insane from here on out. (laughs) But however, there is one anime that I'm looking at, which I find, again, I really like these small details in history. And I find a lot of that in this anime. And so I love it. It's not completely accurate, but the small details are there. It is called Blue Eye Samurai. And it deals with Japanese isolationism which I find incredibly interesting because during the Meiji period of Japan, where they completely shut off all interactions with the outside world, and so there was nobody that was supposed to be in Japan except for Japanese people, and so they had no contact with Europeans at all, and it follows this um, woman. Her name is Mizu, and she is half Japanese, half European and deals with her trying to find her father and kill him, basically. (laughs) And at the time she was born, there were only four European men in Japan, according to the anime. And so it it just, the details, the dresses, the... We're back into fashion. Yes, I know. (laughs) It's just so cool. Because the creators of the anime, um, which I believe it was from an American studio. So again, maybe anime is more becoming a stylization of something you can watch a show. And they said that Mizu has to pretend to be a man to protect herself um, Mm -hmm. because women back then were not allowed to be samurais. And so a lot of her hiding her gender is wearing clothing that was seen as male back then because there was a very distinct difference between um, what women wore and what men wore and um, even colors that they were wearing there was a difference between what men wore and what women wore and so just by donning those clothes she was separating herself as a man to society Okay. So it's like a very cool take on it. And a lot of people also liken it to Mulan, but it is a very, I will say, a very adult anime. So it is not Disney friendly. Sure. Okay. So that's one of the series that you have really enjoyed. Mm -hmm. And I know that there are some series that have been around for a very long time. 
what would be kind of a, a classic starter anime series for people to watch? And then just in your opinion, what's one that's entirely overrated? Entirely overrated? Overrated. I'm going to start with that one. Um, one that is entirely overrated that I think too many people are interested in is called One Piece. It is over a thousand episodes. It is almost entirely filler. Uh, there is, and there's so many people that are such diehard fans for it. And I am saying absolutely not. I am not watching this. It is just the style I don't like, the characters I don't like, and how much time you have to put into it. I'm just like, no, absolutely not. <laughs> so it sounds like the soap opera version. Like we talk about yeah. all filler and a thousand episodes. Well, the creator of it, they got to, I think, a thousand episodes. And then he's like, all right. Now we're ready to start the story. I'm like, I cannot dedicate this much time to it. <laughs> um, but I think if you really want to get into anime, there's one called Demon Slayer, which is very popular among among teens especially. They absolutely love Demon Slayer. A lot of it is kind of graphic, and which a lot of anime is, I'm going to be honest. But it has a very good story. It is very heartwarming at times. The characters are incredibly in-depth and... The style is beautiful, and so I think it's a very good start in anime if you're willing to sort of get into it. Okay. And then my absolute favorite anime, which I cannot recommend enough, is called Jujutsu Kaisen, which... <laughs> Wait, say, say that again? Jujutsu Kaisen. Oh, okay. And okay. it uh, translates to, I think, Magic Fighters, <laughs> which... <laughs> it's okay. not as cool sounding as sure. Jujutsu Kaisen, <laughs> um, but it is very cool. Again, I love the style. The characters are incredibly in-depth. It's just so cool. I love it. So side note, I am so old that I remember when it was called Japanimation. Japan, oh my before gosh. They, before they changed to anime. Yep. But some of these series that you're mentioning, am I right in thinking that there are DVDs, but there are also the graphic novels? Yes. Well, most anime starts as manga, um, and then it gets adapted into anime. It really depends on who you get published with and your story and the fan base around it, whether or not you get published. There's a lot of manga. There's also a lot of anime, but there's quite a very big chasm between the two. Okay. I would imagine that there are plenty that are only manga. And never get adapted. Yeah. And, and there's also a lot that are only anime. One of my favorite animes, it's called Yuri on Ice. It started as an anime. Unfortunately, I wish there was manga of it because it stopped at one season, basically. Oh, wow. And it, there was a huge fan base around it, so I never got that. But that's entirely different. But it's, yeah. So just like TV shows that are adapted from books or TV shows that start by themselves, Anime is kind of the same. However, there is more of a focus on starting from the manga. Well, Bailey, it has been great visiting with you today. And and I'm noticing these the threads. There's these common themes. I thought when you told me what you wanted to talk about, I'm like, well, that's three very different things. <laughs> yeah. And in fact, when, when you think about like the historical context mm -hmm. of all three of your interests and the fashions and the medicine, like all three of those seem to interweave throughout all three of those topics. Yeah, it's just weird how things connect in that way, which I never noticed it until talking about it, and I was like, oh yeah, that is, <laughs> I guess my interests aren't as varied as I thought. Thank you so much for visiting with us today, and uh, have a great rest of the day. Yeah, thank you.
And for the final podcast in this series, let's interview the interviewer. Please introduce yourself. What do you do here and how long have you worked at the library? My name is Adrian Ludens. I've worked here at the Rapid City Public Library since October of 2021. I remember because uh, I had just gotten over COVID and oh. I had just had a birthday. And uh, so it's kind of like a clean, fresh start to, oh, to start nice. working here. I'm an L1, you know, work the desks just like everybody in the rotation and also handle incoming material requests and in charge of ordering for the fiction and also part of the interlibrary loan team and part of the podcast team. So oh yeah, a little, I mean, little of everything. I think you're the, the captain of the ship for the podcast team, honestly. So when it comes to the secret lives of librarians, what is the thing that you think would surprise most of the folks? What really comes to mind for what you're going to talk about? The thing that I really immersed myself in for many years is writing, fiction writing. And when did you decide you wanted to try writing? How long have you been at it? There was a time uh, that we lived in Minnesota, and it was one of those things where life was good, and um, I kind of needed a hobby. It was, it was I hate to say boredom, but like I needed something to kind of occupy my time. And I worked at Borders Books and Music, and there was a magazine called Alfred Hitchcock's Mystery Magazine. They had something on the last page of every issue called The Mysterious Photograph, where readers were invited to write a 250-word crime story or mystery story about the photograph that they supplied. And so I just started doing that, and it was kind of a boost of self-esteem when you find your name in the runners-up, right? They'd pick a winner, and then they'd have like five or six runners up. Sure. And that became like this fascination of mine is every month that'd be the thing, right? And I did that for like a year. And we ended up moving back to Rapid City and I kept that up. And then I was very excited because I won it one month. Very nice. And you, know, you get $25 and, and your story gets printed and you get a copy of the issue. And then I won it the next month. <laughs> And I thought maybe I should try something longer than 250 oh, words. Okay, yeah. So you've had, uh, like, you start off with, like, those kind of short stories. And so did you ever branch off into writing a novel? I never did, and I don't think I have one in me. Okay. My attention span is so short that I can barely read a novel, much less try to write <laughs> one, which, you know, takes much, much longer. Right, so right. I try to just stick with the short stories and those are my favorite to read, too, because you can, when we go on break, yeah, you, for 15 minutes, you can read a story. It's and perfect. It's, it's rewarding. Yeah. yeah. No, I, I love the short story compilations. They have they were like my introduction back into reading when I got back into the habit. It was, they're really nice. And so you started off with, it was the Alfred Hitchcock uh, magazine, is that right? Or a publication of some kind? Yeah. That was the first thing I tried and yep. the first publication that I got in, yeah. So the genre is more mystery-oriented. Have you, like, found your niche or what genre you enjoy writing the most? Yeah. I, you know, ironically, because I was an avid reader as a kid, and I read, you know, the whole Hardy Boys series and Louis L'Amour books and went through, like, a classic literature phase. And the books that stick in my head the most and the stories that stick in my head the most, even to this day, even though I read them when I was, you know, in like grade school and middle school, were these Alfred Hitchcock anthologies. Mm. But they were ghost edited by somebody else. And they just had his little likeness on the cover or whatever. And, you know, the titles were like Witch's Brew and Ghostly Gallery and Monster Museum. 
That's where I discovered authors like Robert Block, Ray Bradbury, Theodore Sturgeon, Roald Dahl write some really dark stuff. <laughs> I mean, right, his kids' yeah. books are pretty dark too, but just <laughs> yeah. imagine what he writes for adults. So oh, wow. those were the stories that 25 years later were just burned, you know, they were etched into my memory, like like the O. Henry twist ending, except it was really dark and morbid and sometimes funny. That was for me. <laughs> so I thought, well, why not try to emulate what I liked best? Okay. And that's kind of how it came about. Very nice. And so you obviously had that, like, brief success with those publications, um, getting your stories published. Since then, what's your publication history been like? It kind of goes in cycles. And, you know, I want to say like maybe about 2015 was probably my best year. And I thought, oh, I am on my way. (laughs) And uh, it, it just doesn't work like that. And it's really disheartening. But at the same time, I'm noticing like authors that in my mind are pretty legendary. And they're on Facebook saying, I got a short story rejection today. Okay. And so it's like, wow, you know, kind of the times are changing. Not everything you write is going to be the best thing you ever wrote. And so I have published, I've had several professional rate sales and I've sold a couple Solve Them Yourself mini mysteries to Woman's World. They paid the best out of any story oh, I've ever sold. Yeah. Good tip. <laughs> but I've published maybe six times at a professional rate. Mm-hmm. And then I couldn't even tell you how many times, like, less than that. You know, like, uh, you get a penny a word or $25 and a copy of the anthology, like that kind of thing. So you kind of knock around down there quite a bit. Sure. But you keep shooting for the higher paying ones. Okay. And it's generally one of those things, you know, you try the higher paying ones first and then work your way down until you get a sale. (laughs) I hate to say that's how it goes, but that is how it goes. Yeah. Yeah. You said that the um, yeah like the one really successful back in 2015. Does that count as your highest achievement, or is it something else that oh, sticks out? Oh well, um, I mean, like proudest accomplishment. There's a couple things that come to mind, and for me, I guess the biggest thrill was being published in something, selling a story, and then you always kind of wait, and it's really exciting when they reveal the table of contents. And there's been times where I've shared a table of contents with like Peter Straub or um, Poppy Z. Bright was another one, a guy named Joe R. Lansdale, a guy named Gary Bronbeck. And the thing is, to you know, if people know horror, they'll be like, oh, yeah, that guy, he's great. And, but for me, it's like kind of swivel the head and look over at the bookcase and go, I have six Joe Lansdale books over there, and now I'm in one with him. Oh, so wow. that that's like this high, right? Yeah, like you're just yeah. like, oh, that's really, really cool. And so that's happened a few times. And, you know, I could look at my bookshelf and go, okay, here's my five favorite books. Not necessarily because of my story that's in there, but because of who else is in there. (laughs) Yeah, I love it. And uh, you can't ask a writer um, or ask a writer questions without asking where your inspiration comes from. Where do these ideas pop up? For me, it's sort of osmosis. The more you read, the more you write, the more you observe in daily life. I just sort of soak it all in. I used to have a a notebook. And if I thought of a phrase I really liked, or if I read a phrase I really liked, drove past something and saw something crazy, I'd jot it down. Wake up first thing in the morning after you have some crazy dream and try to Mm. jot it down while you remember it. And I would just keep that going. Well, now it's kind of like you just talk to text it into your phone and go back and refer to it. And so... I would have a few pages of just these useless random tidbits, but then something 
would would catch fire or would, you know, work into the framework. Because you look at calls for submissions and it'll be like a themed anthology all about folklore in the modern day but involving – the music industry, right? Like they get really specific. <laughs> yep, real and stuff. then all of a sudden you're like, wait, I've got something for that. <laughs> okay. And then that kind of tint, it's like kindling, right? And, that, and then that catches flame and you can write a story with it. I found that if I try to force a story, just like sit down and try to come up with something, it's not going to go anywhere, okay. really. It's just osmosis. I mean, you know, working here at the library, right? <laughs> there's, there's some characters around right, here. Right. And I feel like, you know, it might be five years down the road, Something I observed here is going to end up in a story. So, I bet. I yeah. bet. Oh, yeah. I... <laughs> uh, maybe, the, the, maybe story, the stories of, like, a library-centric uh, anthology would be fascinating. I would I, love that. I think that, yeah. <laughs> you might be onto something there. Yeah, yeah. I, I know that there are a lot of, even here at the library, there's some groups that come in kind of, of uh, aspiring writers and beginning writers. And I'm wondering, for anyone listening who's wanted to try their hand at it, what kind of advice do you have for someone starting out? Well, practice a lot. Try to learn as much as you can. And I very much was a learn from your mistakes, learn as you go. You've got to really, I guess the first thing that I should have said is have a thick skin and don't take it personally because you will get stacks and stacks of emails rejecting your, your stories. Sure. And you just have to bounce back. And in the rare instances where they offer critique or, or criticism, Take it. Don't take it personally, but mm-hmm. take it and open that manuscript back up and start making changes and fix it and polish it up. And there's been times when I'm really invested in an idea and I just love this idea. And then an editor will say, well, that doesn't really work. And here's why. And so you just have to be able to kind of take the, the critiques and improve your story and, and try again and again and again. Yeah. That'd be my main thing. And then learn as much as you can. The more you know about the rules, the more you can kind of break the rules, but it will look like you knew what you like were doing. Like an intentional. Right. Yes. Yes. Yep. yes. Yep. No, that makes sense. Where can people find more about the great Adrian Ludens? I am on Facebook, and you can just look up my name, but you can also find me on Amazon. And again, it's just I use my real name to write, so there's no uh, pseudonym or anything. And so, yeah, Amazon, I have a page, and then Facebook, I have a page just for my writing. If you happen to get on Amazon and you're overwhelmed because you're like, how did this guy write 50 books? I didn't write 50 books. I'm in 50 books. Right. But just look for the difference between the, the my collections and the anthologies. I have six books that are just me. My name should be on the on the cover and the byline and all that. If it's including me and several other authors, you know you're only going to get one story. So I have six that are all mine. Three were self-published and three came out from small press publishers. So I guess in the interest of um, trying to make those publishers happy, I would say <laughs> look for uh, look for Bottled Spirits and Tension of a Coming Storm. Those are the two available now from small press publishers. And small press publishers, just like uh, up-and-coming authors, need all the help they can get. True. Cool. Well, are there any final thoughts that are popping up now that we've had this conversation? You know, I haven't written anything new in quite a while, and maybe I need to go home and try to put some ideas on paper. Okay. I won't be offended if there's some similarities to our co-work. There's a character named Grady. (laughs) (laughs) Grady Johnson. (laughs) Yeah, right. Yeah. No, this has been fun, Adrian. Thanks for sharing your authorship with us. Thank you. Appreciate it.